Those of you who have been attending here, who are members here, coming here for some time, know that we're in a series called Encounters with God, Stories of Grace Overcoming Guilt. And our aim throughout the series has been to look at the lives of individual characters throughout Scripture and to ask the question, how does God confront them? How does God speak to a human being after he or she has has been in a time of discouragement, as we looked at the life of Elijah last time, or a time of sin or anger, like we looked at the life of Cain? How is it that God encounters a human being? And the reason why we're asking that question is because we want to know what it looks like when God encounters us, when we have an experience with God. And the thing that we have to realize is that God is always with us. Uh, There is no place that we could hide from the presence of God, but so often we are unaware of God's presence. And one of my prayers and hopes for this series is that it would heighten our awareness of what it means to live in the presence of God. But being in the presence of God is not necessarily a, a, a comforting thing. Because God, as He reveals Himself to us, reveals Himself to us in His holiness, in His greatness, in His glory. No person ever had an encounter with God and goes unchanged. Someone always is changed, either for the good or the bad, either responding in in faith toward God's revelation of Himself or turning away. And so it's important for us to realize that as we study these encounters with God, there are things that we have to respond to. And that's what we're going to look at here in this encounter that Isaiah has with God in Isaiah chapter 6. This is such a, a classic passage on the holiness of God because in it we have the refrain that the angels give, holy, 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 that is the, the source and impulse of some of the hymns that we, that we sing, just the, the a hymn we sang just this morning. And one of my favorite children's picture books is one that's called Fool Moon Rising. And it's a story of a moon who was an arrogant show-off. And he thinks that he is the most important thing in the sky. I mean, his light outshines the planets and the stars. He could change shapes from a circle into a crescent. He could even do disappearing tricks. He could make himself vanish completely. He could make the tide rise and fall, and all he does is boast and brag. And his bragging drones on and on until suddenly it's interrupted by a piercing ray of light that exceeds any ray of light that has come from him, and it is the ray's from, from the sun. Either the, the moon up until this point didn't realize that all the light he had was just reflected light. And so his self-image was entirely distorted. He thought he was so important. He thought he was the most important thing in the sky. It's easy to see the point of this story. And that is our self-image, what we think about ourselves, will always be distorted, will always be out of place, until we see the true source of our value. We can never evaluate ourselves properly until we recognize the true source of our value. It's like a key has no meaning unless there is such a thing as a lock. What is the value of a glove unless there was such a thing as a hand? What would be the value of a clock unless there was such a thing as 
time. These things find their value in something else. And how can we find our meaning and our value unless we understand what makes us valuable or more precisely, who makes us valuable? The source of all things. And this is where we tend to fall off the wagon here because we like to make ourselves the measure of everything else. Someone said something to me and it was wrong because it hurt my feelings. Or I like that guy. He makes me feel good. Or that was, that was a bad thing that happened. I don't like it. We, we make our own feelings, our own self, sacred, holy, as the measure of everything else. But there's something deeply confusing about this. It's like trying to find your way using a compass in your hand when right next to that compass you have a magnet. It's not going to work that way. But this is how we are when we try to navigate our lives with ourselves as the most important thing in life. And so often we find ourselves there. We, we find our own self lofty, exalted, and ultimately misplaced. And this was the condition of the people to whom Isaiah was prophesying in Isaiah chapter 6. You see, these people had such an exalted view of themselves and such a low view of God, they needed to understand their place, just as you and I need to understand our place. And Isaiah was called to represent God to them, to speak the truth of God uh, to these people who had such a high view of themselves and such a low view of God. You know, the first few verses of Isaiah God complains that the people are like children. He said, I, you're like church, children that I've reared and brought up that, that deserve love and, and my love and loyalty, but instead you've abandoned me and forsaken me. But that's where Isaiah 6 comes in, because in this chapter, Isaiah experiences on a personal level what the people are to experience on a national level. And the question is, how does God take people who are so wrapped up and their false sense of importance, break them out of that deceit and duplicity, and actually set them on the right course so they're serving God and living their, their true purpose in life instead of shunning God and living in rebellion to Him. How does God confront a people like that? How does God change people like that? And here's how He does it. He brings them into an encounter with Him just like this encounter that Isaiah has here in chapter 6. And we see three parts to this encounter. And here they are. We're going to be looking at these one at a time, and these form the divisions of the sermon so you know where I'm going. Three parts here. The first is a vision of God, and we see this in verses 1 through 5. And the second part is grace from God, and we see this in verses 6 and 7. And the third part is a mission from God. We see this in verse 8. So a vision of God, grace from God, and a mission from God. Vision, grace, and mission. So first of all, Isaiah has this exalted vision of God. And we see the circumstances of this vision in verse 1. It is in the year that King Uzziah died. What's the significance of the year that King Uzziah died? King Uzziah was, for the most part, a really good king. And he had reigned for 52 years. Now, in those days, and under this, the monarchy of the kings of Israel, 
the, the king was obviously the central ruler of the nation. All the branches of the government were rolled up into one. The executive, the legislative, uh, were all rolled up into this one man. And furthermore, they didn't have four-year elections. Kings didn't serve for four years at a time. It was for life. For 52 years, this man had been on the throne. He had been on the throne longer than most people had even been alive. And so at the end of this man's reign, he died. I mean, this is just earth-shattering for everybody. The only thing, the only king that they had known, his life comes to an end. And why is this so important to the circumstances of Isaiah's vision of God? Because although a human ruler is off the scene, there is a divine ruler, the king of kings, and his reign never ends. Civilizations may come and go. Kingdoms may crash against the rocks of time, but God's kingdom never fails. The king on this throne has always been on the throne, from eternity past into eternity future. And this is the circumstance of Isaiah's vision. It is in the year that this king Uzziah, this long-reigning king, died. And what are the details of this vision? What's the description here? He sees the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And what I want to do is I'm going to walk you through the details that Isaiah gives in this description of his vision of God, and, and I, I want the force of this to just wash over you, okay? Because this is a massive vision. I want us to get it, so just let, let the force of it wash right over you so you can kind of experience, insofar as possible, reading the text, what Isaiah went through when he's standing there and has this vision of the Lord high and lifted up. What does it mean, first of all, that he is sitting on a throne? It means that the one that Isaiah sees is a king, and the fact that he is high and lifted up means that he is not just the greatest of kings, he is the king of kings, he rules over all kings. Isaiah tells us that, his, that the train of his robe filled the temple. The fact that it filled the temple means that every corner of this king's dwelling bears the imprint of his splendor. In fact, it could be that the temple here stands for the entire universe, as we see elsewhere, say in the Psalms, the temple is a metaphor for the universe, for the whole world. And the whole world is filled with the glory of God. Just like the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies are shouting forth the work of His hands. This is what's going on in Isaiah's vision of the Lord. He sees a throne and seated on that throne is a king and the king is exalted and the train of his robe is permeating every corner of the entire dwelling showing Isaiah that this is a glorious king. There is no corner of the universe, every square inch is shouting His praise and His glory. This is an exalted vision of God. But if it is true that His throne indicates that He is the King, and the fact that He is high and lifted up indicates that He is the King of kings, and if the fact that his, the train of His robe is filling the temple indicating that every corner of the universe is filled with His glory, then the song of the seraphim even heightens our awareness of the greatness of this King. What is this all about? Here are these angels with this very odd description. They have six wings, but only two of them they use for flying. Two of them they're covering their face with, 
Two of them, they're covering their feet, and with two, they're flying, and they're singing a song. And it is the song that forms the content of what Isaiah is intended to understand by this vision. And what is their song? It is this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The seraphim, the word here means burning ones, even though they themselves are burning in holiness and devoted to the praise of God, yet they themselves cannot view the blinding holiness of the one seated on the throne. They're covering their faces. The covering of their feet possibly refers to a sense of humility or modesty, and with two, they're flying. These are powerful creatures, and they're devoted to singing about the holiness of God. What is God's holiness? It is this, everything that makes God different from everything else, which is everything about Him. The holiness of God is everything about Him that makes Him different from everything else, which is everything about Him. Which simply means God is absolutely unique in every way possible. And the main thing that makes him unique is that he has no source of his existence. You and I don't know anything else like that. Everything that we know, from the molecules to the galaxies, has some sort of source or beginning. God is not that way. He is, as we saw when we looked at Moses' encounter of God at the burning bush, he is the I am the self-sustaining, self-existent one who owes to nothing else the source of his existence. This is God's holiness. And it is his holiness that makes him glorious. Look at the two lines of the songs of the angels. The first line has to do with his holiness, and we might expect the second line to be about the same thing because they say this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His, we might expect Him to say holiness, but it says instead the word glory. What does that tell us? The glory of God is His holiness on display. Okay, the fact that this being who is high and exalted is utterly unlike anything else, when that holiness, that uniqueness, when it is emanating, radiating, filling the earth, that's called glory, the glory of God. And perhaps the best way that we can illustrate this is by thinking about our sun, the star in our solar system. In that sense, this flaming ball of gas is absolutely unique. What makes it, makes it unique? The biggest, the brightest, the source of warmth, and life, that's what makes the sun holy. What makes the sun glorious is when that holiness of the sun radiates to the rest of the Milky Way, our solar system. Like that is glory. The glory of God, simply stated, is His holiness on display. When what makes Him unique is radiating to the rest of the universe. That is 
the glory of God. We see that the angels are singing about this. And then in verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The fact that his voice shakes the foundations of the threshold signifies incomprehensible power. And the fact that this house is full of smoke means that while Isaiah is getting a glimpse of this high and holy one, he certainly doesn't have the whole thing in view. This is what is meant by this this smoke in the room is that Isaiah is being reminded and told that while you somehow can put your eyes on this Holy One, you're certainly not seeing Him in all His glory and in all His holiness because no one can see God and live. And trying to get your arms intellectually around God is, is even, it's, it's like trying to see the White Mountains through a pinhole. You can't do it. You can only see one tiny little speck at a time. And here Isaiah is stunned by this vision of God and the smoke is telling him, and, the, and you're not really seeing the whole thing after all. You're just getting a little bit. What a vision of God Isaiah has here. Now, let's go back to our original question, okay? So I've taken you to this vision that Isaiah has of the Lord high and lifted up, exalted as the King of kings who is holy, who has angels surrounding Him, devoted to singing His holiness. What was our original question? Is how does God take a people who have such an inflated view of their own importance and get them to see who they really are? How does God do that? How does God humble us? How does God give us a right self-perception? when we have so veered off course because of an inflated view of ourselves. Here's how he does it. He gives people a glimpse of his holiness. Isaiah has this vision of God. He's supposed to be the prophet of God to a people who think they're exalted and God is low, and that's reflected in their behavior. They treat God casually. They treat their self as sacred, just like we treat ourselves, our, our own feelings as absolutely sacred. And here's what they needed. They needed a vision of God's holiness. But notice what happens next. It's not what you would expect. I said, what does God do when He wants to give people a proper self-image? He shows them His holiness. But what's the whole purpose of this is so that the people can serve them as He should. But what happens Here we see Isaiah's response to the vision, and it seems to be the opposite of what needs to happen. Look at verse 5. And I said, woe is me. You see, instead of raising Isaiah to confidence, instead of boosting his energy and resolve to serve God, This vision of God instead crushed him. Back to the original question. How does God take a people who have this inflated view of themselves? This inflated view of themselves has made them veer off the path of mission and obedience. Okay, God shows them his holiness. But what happens? They're still not serving God because they feel crushed under the weight of the glory of the holiness of God. I mean, instead of standing up, saluting, 
Walking out of the temple in his vision, Isaiah comes unglued. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm lost because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. What's going on here? See, Isaiah's job was to speak for God. He was a prophet. He needed to use his lips. But in view of God's holiness, he realized that he was utterly incapable of doing that like he should. I mean, how can a prophet speak for a, such a holy God who has sin in his heart and that sin inevitably comes out of his mouth? And it's in the culture all around him. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. This is, this is the people that I dwell among. This is the way they talk. This is the way they think. This is the way they live. How can I possibly? He, he sees his vision of God that's absolutely terrifying and awe-inspiring, and he's thinking, how can I possibly go out and be a prophet to these people when I am so defiled? Instead of raising Isaiah to living a life of purpose and fulfillment, this blindingly bright view of God brings something else into view. And what does it bring into view? It brings into view Isaiah's sin. And friends, this is always what a, a right view of God is going to do to us. It's going to bring into light our own sin, just like a spotlight on a dirty floor. You see all the imperfections and all the dirt. That's what happens when the spotlight of God's holiness and glory invades every part of your life. You suddenly find yourself repulsed by all the filth that you can see. And this is, it's this aspect of an encounter with God that I think terrifies us most. You know, we find our, we, we don't mind like cartoon pictures of God. You know, it's like, okay, there's, there's a little picture of God. That doesn't deeply disturb me. I don't feel awestruck by, by that. Maybe there's even something weirdly comforting about these Renaissance paintings of God as an old man draped in a flowing robe with a long beard. I don't know. It's, it seems so accessible. It, it seems so human. But how different is the Bible's portrayal of God? Then instead of making us feel comforted, instead makes us feel crushed. I think we know a little bit about how this feels. If any of you have been into music, say music is your thing, and you, let's say that you want to play the piano, and you go to a concert, and you hear, excuse me, a great pianist, a professional musician playing the piano. And as you sit there, just awestruck by the talent you watch this person's fingers fly across the keyboard. You have two thoughts at the same time. Your first thought is, this is amazing, and I want to do that too. You think, this is what my life is meant for, to be a musician like that. And the second thought you have is, I could never, never play like that. Maybe it's not just music, but anything else. You see someone who so far exceeds you in their skill and competence 
Or maybe you'll find yourself next to a person who is so nice and so kind. And you feel just like mean around them. And you think, I, I could never be that nice. I could never be that kind. I could never be that loving or that sacrificial. And the, the problem with being in the presence of God's holiness is not that there's anything wrong with His holiness. It's because it's so good. It's because it is so perfect that makes us feel so unworthy. You see, no one will serve God as they should until they see what an exalted king he is. But no one can serve God as they should unless they experience God's grace. You know, all it takes is for one glimpse of this Holy One to realize that He is what life is all about. All it takes is one glimpse of God high and exalted to realize, oh, that's, that's what life is all about. That's what this universe is all about. That's the source of all goodness and beauty and truth and everything that I've longed for. And yet standing in his presence like that makes you realize your own unworthiness. Here it is. Isaiah needed not only a vision of God's holiness because that vision of God's holiness alone was crushing. He also needed an experience of grace. You see, life without God's holiness brings chaos. But God's holiness without grace brings despair. And holiness and grace together bring salvation and comfort and purpose. And so that's why this encounter with God that Isaiah had was not just a vision of God's holiness, but it was also grace from God. Remember I said there are three parts of this encounter. The first was a vision of God, and the second is grace from God. And here's how it happened. First of all, false hope was removed. Isaiah had to get to a point when he realized that he couldn't do anything to make himself right with this holy God. He didn't go out of the temple saying, oh, got it, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do more, I'm going to study more, I'm going to try to be the man that I should be. That's not what he said. He said, I'm absolutely undone. The, the false hope was knocked out from under him. And you see how this grace was given. Look at after he said, woe is me, for I am lost, I'm a man of unclean lips. Then in verse 6, one of the seraphim, that is one of the burning angels, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now this seems a little strange to us at first. But let me explain what's going on here. Normally, in the ritual of the Jewish religion, things that are clean, ritually, get defiled by things that are unclean. And so if a, if a person was ritually clean, they've gone through the right ceremonies, they touch a dead body. The dead body doesn't become ritually clean. The clean person becomes ritually unclean. It's like death and, and defilement and uncleanness permeates the clean. 
In this case, Isaiah has just said, I am unclean. And yet something clean and pure comes and touches him. And instead of his uncleanness defiling that coal from the altar, the coal from the altar cleans him. It actually works the other way around. Just the opposite as you would expect. And you also notice that it is a coal from the altar. And what the angel says explains what that means. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What is the purpose of an altar? An altar is a place where an animal was sacrificed to cover sin. This was a place where the guilt of the people could be atoned for, washed away, forgiven, because that guilt was placed upon an animal that was slaughtered in place of the guilty human being. What's going on here is this. Isaiah is realizing that even though he is unworthy to be in the presence of this Holy One, a sacrifice has been made on his behalf. A sacrifice so pure and powerful that a coal from the altar of that sacrifice has the power to clean and cleanse him, to cover his sin. There's only one thing like that. There's only one thing that points to. There's only one person in all of history who was so clean and so pure that what he touched became clean instead of making him unclean. There's only one person who walked the face of this earth and would walk up to lepers people with skin diseases, people who are blind, people who are unclean, and would reach out and actually touch them and make them clean. And there was only one person on the earth who lived a life so perfect and died a death that he didn't deserve as a sacrifice for sinners, and that is Jesus Christ. This is where that grace comes from. It comes from the altar, the place of sacrifice, the place that points to that perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who died for sinners who have come to the point in light of God's holiness that they have said, woe is me for I am undone because I'm totally unclean. And I can't survive in the presence of this Holy One. The only way that grace comes is from the cross of Jesus Christ who died for sinners. I said earlier, We need not only a vision of God's holiness, but we also need an experience of God's grace. Where are we going to get that vision of God's holiness? Where will we receive God's grace? There's only one place it happens. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ. Only at the cross was God's holiness displayed in all its fullness as the wrath of God was poured out upon the innocent Son of God. And only at the cross of Christ is outpoured the mercy and grace of a God who loved us so much He was willing to do that. There and there only do we see the fusing, the combination of holiness and grace. And only there and only then are we able to say, here I am, I'll go. You see, after Isaiah had this crushing vision of the holiness of God, he said, woe is me. And moments later, he changed from saying, woe is me, to saying, here I am. What changed is the grace of God. What changed him, it was the grace of God. God's holiness didn't change. Isaiah didn't feel comforted because God said, that's okay, I'm not as holy as I look. No, God was still exalted and lifted up. He was still high and holy, but it was the holiness extending to Isaiah the grace that he needed. And so is the holiness of God that extends the grace that you and I need. And that happens at the cross of Christ. He's a God so holy that sin must be punished. He's so loving that he spends his wrath on his son instead of us. 
Isaiah's vision of God included a, a vision of his holiness. He received God's grace, and then he was given this mission. He moved from saying, woe is me, to here I am. This is a lesson we need to learn, my friends. In order to move from the woe is me to the here I am, from the despairing and unmotivated, joyless cry to this joyful, volunteering, willing, here I am, we need to see both God's holiness and His grace at the same time. And where do we see that? At the cross of Christ. If we see only God's holiness, we'll be crushed in despair. We can't see His grace without His holiness. But in light of both, we'll be motivated to serve the Lord. Let me ask you this. Do you, friend, for the first time perhaps, realize how high and holy God is? We live in a culture of a trivialized deity and a magnified self. And maybe that's been your view of God and of yourself. And for the first time in this moment, you've seen that God is holier and more exalted than you ever even imagined. And you felt that sense that Isaiah had when he said, woe is me. If, that, if you are experiencing that for the first time, it could be that God is speaking to you and calling you to trust in Jesus as your Savior. But it could be brother or sister in Christ that your service to the Lord has been motivated by a woe-is-me kind of attitude that is, is energized not by joy and gratitude, but by a sense of guilt and duty. You need the same thing that Isaiah did, and that is to see both God's holiness and His grace at the same time. To be reminded of what Jesus did for you on the cross so that you can move from the sense of despair or guilt or drudgery to a joyful, grateful, energized serving the Lord. It can only happen as we look clearly and long at what Jesus has done for us on the cross so that we could say, God is great. I must serve Him and He is gracious, and I get to. That's what a vision of God gives us as it is combined with both holiness and grace.